Well, it was a chaplain of Bourbon Street who wrote a book a few years ago entitled, It's Fun Being Saved. And he had walked on the wild side for most all of his life until he came to Christ and he discovered the grace of God and he discovered the joy of the Lord. He discovered the pleasure of belonging to a church and he wrote the book, It's Fun Being Saved. And that was what I felt this morning in worship. It's fun being saved. And um, I hope that it will feel that way at the end of this service too because we're going to have some fun this morning. The Bible not only reveals the nature of God and what He's done for us through the ages and through His Son, it also impresses on us the will of God and how we should live and what makes life work. So Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, as it is sometimes identified, reveals God's intent for a man and a woman to experience excitement and commitment and fulfillment in their relationship. He desires for us to be both holy and happy, whether we're unmarried or married. Look at the words of Jesus in John 10. Meditate on them for just a moment. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. He doesn't want us to miss anything. And then in John 15, 11, I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Now, although men and women are spiritually identical, that is, we have equal standing in the presence of God, we are different physically. It is undeniable that God created us as distinct yet complementary sexual beings. And it was our Creator who ordained romantic chemistry between the two genders. I want to say that again. It is our Creator who ordained romantic chemistry between the two genders. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, verse 31, so God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him male and female. He created them, verse 31. God surveyed all that He had made, and it was very good. Then later in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, there's that beautiful couple of verses that you hear in almost every wedding you go to. For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they too will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. God's best for us is that the two becoming one is a process that actually begins with the excitement of courtship, and then it progresses to commitment in marriage. And then it culminates in the fulfillment of physical oneness and married life. Now, this process is poetically and, frankly, sometimes graphically detailed in the Song of Solomon. In fact, because of the explicit references in certain passages of the book, some Jewish teachers would not allow men to read it until they were 30 years old, and the women were not allowed to read it at all. The content of this book, however, is not shameful. It is beautiful, and it is a sacred revelation of God's best 
for His people. And it's a celebration of our sexuality that is exclusively experienced in the context of monogamous marriage. And I'm telling you, as a culture, we've moved clear away from what we see as God's ideal in the Song of Solomon. I want us to rediscover it together and conform our lives to it and be blessed. You see, God does not throw us into the middle of creation and say, figure it out for yourselves, folks. Then do that. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us into His own glory and goodness. So it's my contention that God has mercifully given us this model in the Song of Solomon so we would know how to relate to each other romantically as male and female. Now, just a word to you parents. In order to faithfully deliver the truths from this Bible book, there are going to be times when my typical G, PG rating of my messages will sound a little more like PG-13. But I want you to relax, I promise, sensitivity and discretion. Well, today, we're looking together at excitement. Chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 5. And in this first section of the Song of Solomon, it is equating to the attraction and the courtship phase of the man-woman relationship. And what we're going to see is that during this time in the relationship, there is no sexual union. The couple is reflecting on what their relationship was like leading up to their wedding day, and there's no sexual union. But then there's a brief description of the wedding in the latter part of chapter 3. And then from then on, beginning in chapter 4, he refers to my sister, my bride, over and over again. But he doesn't refer to her as my bride before the wedding. Before the wedding, they call each other beloved. They call each other darling. They call each other lover, but it's not lover in the sense of our contemporary definition. It is a non-sexual designation. The entire book of Song of Solomon is a running dialogue between the king, Solomon, and a Shulamite woman that he will soon marry. And we get to eavesdrop on their poetic conversation, and in the process, we're going to learn some valuable lessons about romantic love as God intended it. So, are you ready for some excitement? Are you ready for some football? <laughs> Take a look. The Shulamite woman speaks first in chapter 1, verse 2, and here's what she says. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name, your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. Okay. We're kind of deep into it here from the get-go, aren't we? 
Definitely some excitement taking place here. She's got it bad for the king. She is physically attracted to him. She's ready to be married. That's what she means when she says, let the king bring me into his chambers. She's ready to tie the knot. But that's not where the relationship started. Did you notice in the text, she said, your name is like perfume poured out. Now, when she talks about perfume, she's talking about his character. Your name is like perfume poured out. He's known as a man of character. All the maidens, all the marriageable young women love him, but notice their focus is not on what he looks like. It's on who he is. So the attraction here is not about whether he's a hunk. It's about his character. Young ladies, I cannot impress this on you too much. When you choose whom you will love, and listen to my terminology here, when you choose whom you will love, look first at their character. Let me tell you why I was first attracted to my wife. Her older brother roomed across the hall from me in Bible college my freshman year. He was always talking about his 16-year-old kid sister, and he talked about her in glowing terms, told about how she served at church camp and in the youth group, told about how she was a straight-A student, she was on the student council as an officer, how she was helping to care for her grandmother who lived in the family home. He talked about how she played the piano and sang, and my curiosity peaked. So I asked him one day, you got a picture of your sister. <laughs> well, he pulled out his wallet. I looked at her picture. I asked him about her uh, approximate height and weight. <laughs> hey, listen, he was 6'5 and weighed 235. <laughs> she was a linebacker, it, it would have been a deal breaker. He said, well, she's about 5'5 she's about five, five and 120. So I said, I'm going to be your brother-in-law someday. <laughs> and three years later, my prophecy was fulfilled. <laughs> but let the record show, my initial attraction was her good reputation. That's what I heard about her from an insider. The best indicator of future performance is past performance. Let that burn, be burned on your mind. The best indicator of future performance is past performance. It's not the only indicator, but it is the best one. And remember a couple of things you should know about looks, okay? Looks are often deceiving some of the most insecure, narcissistic people on planet Earth are also the best looking. Just because a person looks appealing does not mean they are or they, are, they will be over time. Another thing about looks, looks tend to diminish. Now, have you noticed these older men walking on the beach in their Speedos? <laughs> I rest my case. Did he just say Speedo? I'm just saying. Mark your wedding day, take a lot of pictures, because you won't look that good again as long as you live. <laughs> well, the Shulamite woman continues. Look at this, beginning in verse 5. 
Dark am I, yet lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I have neglected. Here's what she's saying. She's saying, I have not spent the kind of time on my body and my beauty that I might have. This is not a girl who requires two to three hours to get ready before she's going out. She hasn't given her outward appearance the kind of attention other ladies have. Why? Well, because she's been working hard in the vineyards. She's been submissive. She's been serving at home. She didn't grow up spoiled, indulged by people catering to her desires and trying to make her life easy. She had not spent her life trading on her looks. She had faced adversity. She had faced family challenges. She worked hard in her home. She put others ahead of herself. She took care of the vineyards, and she neglected her own vineyard, and that's a metaphor. That's a metaphor for her appearance. She neglected her own vineyard. She didn't own a vineyard, but her own vineyard was her own appearance. If you're making a list of things to look for in a prospective mate, you better put this kind of unselfishness and this kind of unself-consciousness near the top. So the Shulamite, Shulamite woman is attracted to the character of the king. The king is attracted to her depth. I'm telling you, both of them are checking out the right things about each other. And a good exercise for all of us here might be to look at his life or her life, that significant other that we may have, and lay that person alongside the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Here's the list. Take a look. Lay the significant other in your life alongside this list. Is that person a loving person, a warm, loving person. Joy. Does she have anger issues and mood swings? Peace. How does he handle pressure? How does he handle anxiety? Patience. How does he do behind the wheel in traffic? Kindness. Is she respectful of older adults? Is she tender with children? Goodness, does he consistently choose to do the right thing? Faithfulness, are there lapses in her integrity? Is he a consistent worshiper? Gentleness, is he naturally controlling? Is he harsh, self-controlled? What about her work ethic in the home? If he tries to get physical too soon, you better beware. So what else can we see here? As the Shulamite woman continues to speak, verse 7, she says, Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends. She's saying, tell me where you'll be, and I'll show up there. Now, some ladies have been told, just pray and wait, and Mr. Wright will show up. You be content, and God will send your soulmate to you. Stop looking 
and wait on the Lord. Now, I understand that, and I agree with that to a point. But that's not what you do if you're hungry. You don't sit in the family room and pray for the Lord to bring you a meal. You go into the kitchen and make yourself a sandwich. But, but you shouldn't be too obvious about it. Guys, listen, listen. Do not go into bed, bath, and beyond and hang out in the scented candle section. It's just not a good opening line. I like lavender pomegranate. What's your favorite? That's not going to help you. So the Shulamite woman is making herself visible to him, but, but she says, I will not be like the immoral woman. I will come to you at midday. See, the veiled woman she refers to in the text is a prostitute who intentionally hangs around the shepherds at night trying to hook up. But the Shulamite woman is not going to use sex to get a man or to keep a man. She'll take the initiative to meet him, but she makes it clear that she has boundaries and she establishes them up front. So she's attracted to him, and as we'll see, he is attracted to her. They don't get married until the end of chapter 3, but they are seriously courting, and their relationship is growing and deepening. Now, I want you to look at what the king says to her, and I want you to use these verses as they kind of go back and forth to honestly ask and answer some very important questions about your significant other. Look at verse 9, chapter 1. I liken you, my darling, to a mare harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. Now, guys, okay, before you call your girl a horse... You might want to translate this into our generation. The mare was the most esteemed of animals among the chariots, and this is the Pharaoh's chariot. You know what he's saying to her? He's saying, you are the best of the best. You stand out to me. I admire you. That's what he's saying to her. So, ask yourself, are you respected by your significant other. Look at verse 10. He says, your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with a string of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. So he's, he's showering her with compliments. He's promising her an expensive gift, and in the process, she is learning how he values her. Every woman wants to know that her fiancé, her husband, only has eyes for her, and no other woman and no other women are on his mind. So ask yourself, am I exclusive? Verse 12, while the king was at his table, this is her speaking now. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My lover is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. A little PG-13 there. What's she saying? 
She is saying that he brings out the best in her. The relationship has caused her to grow as a person. When she's with him, when she's with him, her perfume, that is her character, spreads its fragrance. His being in her life makes her more appealing to others. And it's as if she has a lavender pomegranate air wick stuck in her cleavage. I've never heard that word in a sermon before. <laughs> so ask yourself. <laughs> ask yourself, does being in the presence of my boyfriend, my fiance, make me a better person? Verse 15 and the first part of verse 16. He says to her, how beautiful you are, my darling, oh, how beautiful. She says to him, how handsome you are, my lover, oh, how charming. Okay, they're gushing at this point. It's more of that excitement that I'm talking about. But my guess is that some of you were about as goofy in your courtship days. Now, some of you can't remember back that far, but I promise you there was some of this that was going on verbally between you. There's clearly a growing attraction and I want you to see it's normal. I want you to see that the chemistry, the desire to be together should become stronger and stronger with time and peak at the wedding. But if you decide the, the fact that you're engaged makes it okay and you become sexually active before marriage, the chemistry will go the other way. So ask yourself, is there a growing attraction? Now, look at the last part of this verse. Chapter 1, verse 16b, it says, and our bed is verdant. Literal rendering in the Hebrew says, our couch is green. Now, there are two ways to think about this. Number one, she's saying, our bed is unused. Our bed is new. Our bed is still made. No one has slept in it. Or, if something is green, it's exposed to the light. The idea here is that these two are not shacked up in a hotel someplace overnight. They're out in the open. And courtship is not the time to be spending too much time in private. Covenant together to save yourselves for one another. Establish some boundaries. Here are a couple of good ones that we used. Number one, always be in places where you could be interrupted. Never have complete privacy. Two, keep four feet on the floor at all times. So ask yourself, are there physical boundaries in place? The purpose of boundaries, guardrails, is to protect us from plunging over the edge and having a catastrophic accident. Chapter 2, verse 1, she says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley. In chapter 1, she says, don't stare at me because my, sin, my skin is sun-damaged. 
Now she says, I'm the prettiest woman there is. The other person in your life should enhance your self-confidence, your self-worth. So ask yourself honestly, does this person make me feel better about myself? Look at verse 2, chapter 2. Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the maidens. God's plan is one man for one woman. In marriage, you want to give yourself unreservedly to the other person, someone whom you can trust implicitly. And there are a lot of thorny maidens out there. So ask yourself this question and answer it honestly. Do I have complete confidence that this person will be faithful? Chapter 2, verse 3. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover among young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. This is the Shulamite woman. She's saying, I feel protected by this man. I feel relaxed in his presence. He generously provides her needs. He enjoys taking care of her. So ask yourself, do I feel secure about my future with this person? Chapter 2, verse 4. She says, He has taken me to the banquet hall, and His banner over me is love. So, He's taking her out in public. He's proud of her. And the word banner here is a word that indicates ownership. He's making everyone aware of His honorable intentions with this girl. So, ask yourself, does he, does she honor me in the presence of others? Well, then in verse 5, she says, Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires, or until the time is right, as it's translated in another version. Now, raisins were considered to be an aphrodisiac, to awaken desire and to heighten the ability to conceive children. My guess is in the Evansville-Newburgh area this next week, there will be a noticeable shortage of sun-kissed raisins on the shelves. <laughs> well, the Shulamite woman, the Shulamite woman is, she's fantasizing here. She is dreaming about her wedding night. She is thinking about how He will hold her and embrace her and what it will be like for them to become intimate. She desires this man. She's ready to break out the raisins. And I want you to see that's as it should be. That's God's plan, that there be that kind of longing, that kind of desire. But then there's a qualifier. Did you catch it? We read the text. Do not arouse or awaken love until the time is right. So in the midst of her thoughts about 
her wedding night, in the midst of her passion and desire, restraint is shown. And we're not sure from the text who puts the brakes on here, but I'm telling you, I'm telling you who it should be. It should be the man establishing himself early as the spiritual leader in the relationship. In chapter 3, verse 1, she begins another cycle of fantasizing about the one her heart loves. But again, she concludes in chapter 3, verse 5 with the same words, do not arouse or awaken love until the time is right. She isn't talking to her girlfriends about her sexploits. She's witnessing to them about maintaining purity. Listen, guys, if you want to earn the respect of your girlfriend, if you want to earn the respect of your fiancé, you show her that you have sexual self-control, and then you will be even more attractive to her because she knows she will be able to trust your sexual self-control after you are married. Bottom line, ladies, do not offer Gentlemen, do not accept the key to the fantasy suite. If you do, you will be sorry. You'll be settling for less than God's best in your relationship. Your fantasy will become sexual regret. You will forfeit God's mystical blessing on your wedding night and you will increase the risk of losing the relationship in the future. Well, I want to close with this. Chapter 2, verse 8. Listen, my lover, look. Here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. She imagines that the king will do anything to be with her. He has chosen her. He is pursuing her. He is leaping over mountains. He is bounding over hills. He's Superman, able to leap tall buildings with a single bound. He's a picture. He's a picture of the excitement, the attraction of courtship. And it's a good thing. It's a God-ordained thing. But listen, friends, as we come to our time of commitment, i got to tell you about another lover, one who loves your soul, the essence of who you are, the part of you that will live forever. I have to tell you about another bridegroom, one who's done more than leap over mountains. He laid down his life on Mount Calvary. One who has done more than bound over hills. He ascended Golgotha's hill carrying your cross. A bridegroom who will one day return for his bride, the church, who will one day sit down with his bride at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And his passion is your salvation and mine. So have you surrendered to him are you part of his family, the church? If you're ready to make that decision, either of those decisions, we're down front here to meet you right now as we stand together and worship.